It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Let's say Bonjour. Hello. I'm Kathy Sabokin. And this is Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. The biennial Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto is just around the corner. And like everything else, it will be different this year because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but it's still happening in a big way. It's a multi-platform festival of progressive Indigenous-made fashion, craft, and textiles, challenging mainstream perceptions of Indigenous people and culture. From shopping to films to runway shows, joining me is the Artistic Director of Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto, the amazing and award-winning Sage Paul. Sage, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy yeah. to be here. Thanks for making time for Element FM. I'm sure it's crazy cuckoo right now. <laughs> now let's break it down. What's happening with Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto this year? What are we in for? Oh my goodness. It's a whole reimagining of how we would usually do the festival. Uh, we've put our runway onto runway films so everyone can watch those live um, every evening, November 26th to the 29th at 7 p.m. Um, at our website. Uh, we have a pop-up uh, online marketplace. So um, it'll be there for the four days. And then after that, our marketplace won't be up anymore. So you've got four days to, to see all the designers. You can look right now to see the designers that are a part of the marketplace. Um, and then on those days, you can go and, and shop uh, for, for their uh, products. Um, and also we have a series of uh, panels that we are doing in um, co a co-presentation with Ryerson University, the School of Fashion. And so those are more educational and people can still sign on for all of our programming. People can still sign on through social media and we'll have chat moderators, um, including myself. And um, so we'll still be able to have that element of, of feeling like we're together and we still get to talk about it and <laughs> talk about that, you know, the, the dress that we just saw. So let's break it down. The runway presentations Featuring 16 design. I love runway presentation. There's, there's like, a, there's a show, you know? It's, yeah. It's not just the fashion, it's the whole show behind it. And those were filmed in advance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we... Um, Some of the designers. So we did, we shot them at um, Harbour Front Centre, where we would have done the show. We were so lucky. We were, it was right in between the lull of the first wave and the second wave. So we were able to get a very small team together to shoot 16 different uh, designers. Um, they really, really range. Um, we've, we've curated them in a way uh, based around water and how water connects us, our um, the stewardship of land and water, uh, how, you know, the idea of wander, uh, water as a concept of like a life force. And so with the designers um, in the first evening, it's around water is life. Uh, and that really is a lot of, it's a lot of streetwear and their garments that people, um, the meaning behind it is usually more around protest or really more about the messaging in the power of uh, clothing to um, bring people together um, to share a message, an important message, or that helps to revitalize and sustain our cultures. Um, so that one's Water is Life, and it features Scalinati and Section 35 and Mobilize. Angela uh, Gladue, who's Miss Chief Rocca. Uh, the second night is Tucho, which means lake in Dene. And uh, that's our global program. So it's looking at how water is 
a huge resource, but also connects us and connects all of our different Indigenous nations around the world. And in that one, we're featuring Maru Creations, who is um, from New Zealand, and Margaret Jacobs, who is I'm not too far. She's but she's just uh, over at Alquisasni on the American side. Um, so that's our global program. And our third evening is streams. And that is more about water as a life force and looking at like conceptual fashion. So some of these collections are they feel more avant-garde or they feel more um, ready to wear, like just, you know, fashion you can buy in a store or a boutique. Um, but all of the collections have a really deep meaning to um, ancestors, to um, our stories. And that's what I find really interesting about, you know, regardless of aesthetically what our fashion looks like, uh, the meaning behind the clothing is always very, very important. And there we have uh, Hand of Solomon, who has done an incredible avant-garde collection where she's used plexi or PVC plastic and has embedded um, uh, gold-casted cowrie shells and gold-casted cedar. Um, and it's all around the idea of... Um, of clan mothers and futuristic clan mothers. So when you see these, um, they really feel like entities, um, you know, more than just human when you see the collection walk down the runway. Um, and then the final evening is um, uh, water carriers. It's our it's celebrating and honoring women um, as, you know, water carriers and, you know, the people in our communities who are, um, hold, they have that very important role. We have that very important role, um, but specifically connected to this, um, to the show is about celebrating women. And so the 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 uh, program features all Indigenous women. Um, Anne Muller, who is from Winnipeg, and she's uh, Métis. Um, Ailelum, the Good House of Design, who is actually a family. Um, uh, fashion house, but is uh, led by the two sisters, uh, Sophie and Annalie. And um, who else? Leslie Hampton, who I think most people would know if they're following Indigenous fashion, Toronto no, fashion, Canadian, Canadian fashion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, there's a, there's, like, it's a very big program. <laughs> I'm, I'm like trying to keep up with all the points you're making. So, yeah. Is this not about fashion? This is about politics, too, because I watched your recent TED talk and it was about how fashion isn't just about looking good anymore. It's about making political decisions as well. So we, we have, for example, you mentioned someone making clothing out of the plastics. So that's mm -hmm. an environmental discussion. You have mm -hmm. the, the fact that it's all women. That's a whole other discussion there too yeah. like yeah. the fact you're using water as a theme for the you know to highlight indigenous culture and again environmental issues and mm -hmm. wow that that's a lot going on <laughs> yes yes definitely and I feel like fashion is such an accessible medium that even though there's like, we live in a complex world nothing is black and white and I feel like fashion is like really this an, a, an entry point, an accessible point to address and talk about all of these issues and um, ideas that need to be discussed. And I'm, I'm really excited that, that we get to be a part of that discussion at Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto. Yeah, now I know in your TED talk, you were pointing out how the fashion industry 
has caused a lot of pollution. So what, what about that? Um, well, uh, in fashion, it is the number two polluter of the world. And, and the issue is the carbon footprint that is left behind with shipping, um, dying, and all of this is really based on mass manufacturing. So from my perspective, I see that mass manufacturing as being kind of the biggest culprit in the issues that we're facing in the industry, even with right. labor, like, like ethical, um, unethical practices around uh, labor. And um, so it, it's, you know, it's something that's being addressed in the industry. Uh, Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto, we're working with uh, designers who are working at a much, um, you know, much more local scale. Either they are, if they're tanning, you know, if they're working with leather, they're working with local hunters and local um, tanners. So they know where their their fur and leather are coming from. They know that the meat has gone to feed a family. And they know that, you know, this isn't under mass farming practices, which is another major issue. Um, Yes. Yeah. So uh, there is like, there are a number of issues, but I'm really, I'm kind of watching the fashion industry kind of turn, like actually really turn to Indigenous designers and our community to try to understand um, the practices that they can adopt and the values that they can adopt to you know, continue the industry, the fashion industry that has become what it is, um, and and to try to do better, you know, for the earth, for the animals, for each other. And um, it's a slow process. You're setting a a great example. So good for you. So great. (laughs) I actually went to a, a talk by some fashion experts who were saying that, you know, you know, when you get like all the fast fashion, so those yeah. fast fashion, how that is just, just ending up in landfill, a lot of it. And also yeah. an interesting point they made was that the clothes that are in the secondhand stores, often only 10% of those make it to only 10% of that is sold and the rest goes to landfill because there's so much of it. Yeah, we are just overloaded. And that it's the fast fashion industry. It's the, you know, the clothing is being produced so that we have a new collection every week. You know, someone can go out and buy a t-shirt right away. And when the, when the craft and um, the vision behind fashion was really respected, people would buy a shirt and they would hold on to that for as long as they could they would mend it like it was a very valuable garment that someone has put their time and craftsmanship into and that is really not valued anymore so and it's because of the fast fashion industry the fast fashion industry has created this idea of entitlement this idea idea of um uh well yeah it's really about entitlement (laughs) but also psychology behind it like this is new this is cool this is now so i gotta have it it only yeah. cost thirty dollars or twenty bucks. Yeah. So yeah, gotta have it. And then it exactly. wears in after a few months. So so glad that the indigenous fashion industry is being a front runner here, one of the front runners in bringing this to our attention. It's because mm-hmm. my mom used to sew, so I know all about quality stitching and and mm-hmm. using quality fabric. Then it lasted for a long, long time. Did your mom oh. sew? Is that where you got the sewing bug? <laughs> yeah, my, I did grow up sewing. And I think it was more a part of um, just, 
it's something that we did. I, I didn't grow up when I, where it was a convenience to just go out and buy a cheap shirt because $30 was a huge amount of money for me. So I just ended up making things that I wanted. And um, it, it is, it's our matriarchs, you know, it's our mothers, it's our grandmothers um, who were primarily the ones who were passing on those skills so that we can continue to take care of ourselves. I think that's another thing to point out is that, you know, clothing is a part of our survival. We have to um, be close to fight the elements and, um, and where we learn those practices from is I think important to recognize and to keep moving forward and to value that craft um, and that skill of, of actually creating clothing. Like there's one thing to be designing clothing, which is always the very exciting thing, especially for me is to know the, the background and the, the more artistic vision of clothing. But when it comes to clothing as utilitarian um, and commercial fashion, um, yeah, I think it's just important to understand the, where it has come from and what, you know, what kind of role we play in that as a consumer. You're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app, or on our website, elementfm.ca, and that is spelled E-L-M-N-T-F-M.ca. I'm Kathy Sabokin, and my guest is Artistic Director of Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto, the amazing, fantastic, talented, award-winning mm-hmm. Sage Paul. Because you have a long list of awards. I, I, I took a long, long time. <laughs> Not, I've been, yeah, I've been so grateful to <laughs> I have one award, but I've been nominated. <laughs> I've, I've received many nominations and, you know, a lot of recognition, which has been really encouraging in the work that I do. And I'm always so grateful and, and humbled by, by that recognition. I just... Um, yeah, I think especially as a young person that has really provided me with a lot of drive and motivation to be like, yes, I'm, I'm okay, I'm doing something that, you know, people are, are seeing and feel is, is, is of importance in our overall contributions. Well, I, I think this is great that, that you have this platform and you're using it to the greater good. So it's so great to see. So we should talk about then the fact that there is a marketplace at Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto, which again, November 26th to the 29th at ifwtoronto.shop and and that those watching can shop. So other than your wonderfully created, wonderful fashion items, what else do people <laughs> buy Online. <laughs> well, they they can't shop mine. I'm not I'm not in the festival, <laughs> um, but they can. Uh, we have 40 uh, vendors or artists and designers who are part of our marketplace, and um, everything ranges from clothing to accessories to lifestyle items. Like um, we have uh, Urban and Nook, who who pr- creates ulus, which are the ulu knives um, traditionally from. Uh, way up north the uh, Inuit uh, community uh, who use who use ulu knives for basically everything so he crafts these from um, you know from scratch uh, from you know from raw materials to to create these beautiful ulu knives and so that's like that's more of the craft side of, of the work that we're presenting but also a number of earrings um, earrings are super hot this year I think you know they're always a great accessory for the zoom. <laughs> 
Yeah, so especially this, right? all we can see now. Right. Our, 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 our head. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm really, really excited for that. And I just, I see there's like really a, the community of, of beaters who are creating these earrings, they've got such a tight connection. And I see that connection on Instagram, where you really see the community of beaters supporting each other, they share each other's work. Um, so and they're all producing at a slow pace. So it's not mass manufactured, like we were just talking about, but everything is made by hand, they really are heirloom pieces. And I think that's something to remember when shopping is that everything on our website, um, Oh, well, nearly everything. I know there are a couple of designers who are doing, um, they've, they're just a step up in their manufacturing, but um, most of the, most of the work, I'd say 80% or 90% of the work is handmade. They are made in local communities. They are made by mothers and sisters and dads. And um, so there really is everything for something for everyone. And um, knowing that, you know, our our local communities have have created those yeah uh, there's a history behind it it's, mm-hmm. it's those kind of gifts too are wonderful I love it when I receive that kind of a gift because it's unique it has a history it's I like holding something in my hand that I know someone made yeah, yeah I think people forget about that is that like actually everything in the world has been made by someone but like you know because of the fast fashion again we forget that you know there there are pieces that a lot of care go into and it's I really love my sister um is a bead artist and she speaks about how you know when she's beading she looks down and I like she she works so much with her hands and her beadwork and she looks down she's like and I see my grandma's hands like that is like I think that's just such a profound um experience to have while you are doing something uh, that it's like this resurgent practice of, of beadwork um, to, to have that, that connection, I think is really important. And that is something that it's being passed through this work um, that all of these designers are creating. It is more than um, just, you know, a, an item and, and they are heirloom pieces. They are really great gifts, like you said. And I think there's a lot, whoever you're gifting this item to, whichever you purchase, um, I think there's a lot that you can share with that person you love about that piece. And you're also going to be having a series of panel discussions. So what, what kind of topics are you looking at? I mean, we talked about the politics. We talked about the fast fashion industry and pollution and <laughs> And uh, what, you know what gets to me is exploiting Indigenous culture, where uh, other mainstream companies use Indigenous branding that was that has nothing to do with, like, it's stealing someone else's, is stealing, is stealing from your culture. Do you think that's getting better? Yeah, you know, I, I think these are such important conversations to have. And to talk about cultural appropriation, um, theft, uh, plagiarism, these are all major issues in the industry. Right now, I know there's a shoe company called Quartz Shoes who have just literally stolen a design by um, a local artist, Rosary Spence, and they are refusing to acknowledge this. And um, it's really disappointing because, you know, there's artists like Rosary Spence who, you know, she's a mother, she's a cultural knowledge keeper, um, she's an artist, and uh, she 
that work she puts into the world with a lot of love and for people to just go and take it um, and be profiting off it, it uh, it's just, it's a huge issue on many levels. And um, I, it's just, it, it does, I think it, it upsets me. And I think it, it definitely upsets many people. And, um, you know, my hope is that when people are stealing fashion, that they're just ignorant and hopefully that they can be um, educated. I will say, though, that at Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto, we do take these steps to ensure our conversations are from our perspective. And um, we don't want to be preaching to the choir. I don't want to have to be talking about our designs being stolen again with, you know, a number of designers um, who are creating similar work or are, are telling really important stories. And I also would hope that the larger um, society would be interested in seeing what we are creating as opposed to seeing us continuing to fight for our stolen work. <laughs> so a lot of our work, a lot of our panels are based around the work that we are doing. And definitely cultural appropriation is going to come up. Actually, I know for a fact we've pre-recorded some of those um, panel discussions and cultural appropriation does come up, but they're not centered around that theft. It's centered around our work. So we're going to be talking about land-based fashion, um, which goes into the model of slow fashion and local economies and looking at things like high tanning and trapping um, weaving and uh, sl more slow fashion practices like that. Um, we're also doing a panel um, more around business fashion. So looking at collaborations and what does that mean? So this does actually address that cultural appropriation where um, instead of going and taking a design because you really love it and you think it's really cool, think about collaborating. And so we're looking, we are going to be discussing collaborations that are um, you know, how do we look at reciprocal relationships and um, partnerships that help to that benefit both sides? And that is really the focus of um, many collaborations that Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto enters. Like we just did a project with Simon's, the department store, and that relationship was really focused around ensuring that um, the designers were protected um, because Simon's is a huge department store and they're working with um small businesses, local designers and makers. And um, so really I see my job in, and my role as a facilitator is to ensure that um, the designer's rights um, and time and vision are protected and that they are able to, to put and request what they need to, do a, a, to be successful in their work and not feel like they have to um, work their butts off for nothing. Um, that you know, really isn't the way it should be. Do you think, and, and that's great to know steps in the right direction, that mainstream industry department stores like Simon's feature, highlight some of the clothing by Indigenous designers. Is it received well by the public? Yes, yes, it's so well. The collection, we launched that collection with Simon's um, right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, actually. And it was very, very successful. It's nearly sold out. Um, I think there are a few more items left that we're going to we're going to put into the marketplace and then it'll be completely done because we had each designer who was a part of that project. They only they created a very limited number of, of items for that collection. 
Um, but the public is very excited. I mean, well, for one, the public, when it comes to our community as a part of the public, the Indigenous community as a part of the public, of course, we are all really eager to see something that, you know, we can see ourselves reflected in. Um, so that is a huge part of it. But also, I think people, you know, the, the public is not ignorant to what cultural appropriation is and isn't ignorant to um, labor standards and the environmental issues of fashion. And I think the public is eager to support fashion where they know where it's coming from, where they know who is making it. And uh, Indigenous fashion plays a whole, plays a, a major role in, in being a part of that uh, resource for the public. So let's start supporting starting November 26th to the 29th for the Biennial Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto. And Sage, give us all the different coordinates. Where can we find you? Oh, okay. So you can find us on social, on all social, me- social media. It's uh, our, our handle is IFW Toronto on all social media. And then our website, as you said, ifwtoronto.com. Um, I think that's it. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Toronto on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's at IFW Toronto. And then is there a fee for any of this? Everything is free. So this is another exciting thing is there's no process for registration. Um, So we are working a lot to make sure that people are just aware of the event, but people can log on from our website. Um, But we will also be streaming it to our social media. So um, if you happen to be on social media, you can join in from there. Uh, We'll be doing some virtual shopping. We're kind of doing like a shopping network style virtual shopping in between our programming. So there will always be someone there to talk. So if you're looking for like, I really want to get a dress for my daughter. We'll be there and you can totally just like jump on social media and we will be there to answer any questions that that you have. Fantastic. And I see that the online runway presentations are going to be at seven each evening, November 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th. Love Mm -hmm. those, like I said. And (laughs) yeah, I got to definitely check out the marketplace too. That sounds fantastic as well it's gonna be great and everything will be delivered in time for the holidays so if people celebrate christmas um this is definitely a great place to get some gifts good to know good to know that you're gonna if you order it you're gonna get it soon that's fantastic Mm -hmm. well sage thank you so much it's been a joy to talk to you you too thank you yes so that is sage paul artistic director of indigenous fashion week toronto and indigenous fashion week runs from november 26th to the 29th and once again you can find the full schedule at (laughs) ifwtoronto.com that's right right? ifwtoronto.com and sage all the best with that thanks so much thanks so much for having me i'm really excited to share the festival with everyone Wonderful. You've been listening to Element FM's Moment of Truth. I'm Kathy Sabokin. You can find us on the Radio Player Canada app, also at our website, that's elementfm.ca, E-L-M-N-T-F-M.ca. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Well, welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm Kathy Sabokin. The Kainachi Wanang Historical Center is owned by Rainy River First Nations. It received the Indigenous Tourism Award at the 2020 Ontario Tourism Awards of Excellence via a virtual ceremony. 
And with me now is Kaylee Spears. Kaylee is the museum coordinator. Hi, Kaylee. Hello. Thanks for having me on. So just for reference, because we're based in Toronto, we have a sister station in Ottawa. And of course, anyone can listen to us anywhere with the Radio Player Canada app. But where exactly is the museum? So the museum is located in a town called Stratton. Uh, So we're in northwestern Ontario. We're basically uh, like geographically kind of right in the middle between Winnipeg in Manitoba and Thunder Bay. Um, And we're actually like basically right on the border with the U.S. and then very close to the Manitoba border. So we're kind of tucked in a little corner uh, of the province up there. You know, it seems off the beaten track. I was looking at pictures and it looks absolutely beautiful. So I thought I had to reach out right away. And it seems like a a historical center that we should all know about. So tell us about it. Yeah, I agree. It is a really special place. And we find that, yeah, everybody who comes through here kind of says the same thing and just how it's such a hidden gem and more people should know about it. And we, of course, fully agree. Um, So, yeah, as you mentioned, the center is owned and operated by Rainy River First Nations. Uh, So it is one of the only kind of museums and historical centers in northwestern Ontario that is owned by a First Nations community, which is uh, pretty amazing. And uh, the center, it's been open since actually the mid 1990s. Um, And we do a ton of different stuff here. We have a whole museum with exhibits and galleries. We have a full fledged restaurant. We have a gift shop. Uh, We do guided tours of the exhibits inside as well as on our trails. Um, And the main reason that the center actually exists is uh, because on our trails, we're home to the largest concentration of Indigenous burial mounds in North America. And so we exist here to protect and preserve those mounds. uh, And we do that through presentation and education about them and uh, the history of the community. That's amazing. Now, how is it the whole history of it all? Like how, how did anyone find out there were these massive burial grounds right in that area? So it's something that uh, has definitely been known um, to the indigenous populations in this area and, and kind of all across um, the country, really mound building was quite prevalent all across North America for thousands of years. And before large-scale agriculture and industrialization, there actually would have been hundreds of thousands of different kinds of mounds, so not just burial mounds, but different kinds of mounds all across North America. Um, So it was actually this like huge, huge thing that was happening, these huge earthen mounds being constructed all over. Um, And of course, a lot of them have been uh, destroyed, whether intentionally or just sometimes Uh, you know, through farming and and stuff like that. Um, So yeah, the center, it's really special because we do have such a large concentration here. But um, yeah, it's something that the communities around here have always known um, that these existed. Uh, And on our site alone, like so people have been living on our site or passing through or trading for well over 8,000 years. And then the burial mounds themselves, they started constructing those about three or 3,000 years ago. Um, and yeah, just because it's, it is such a beautiful site. Um, it's such an important site. The site is right on a river and uh, that river connects to like the Mississippi River and everything. So it was a, just a huge place for, for trading. So it really made sense for people to, you know, to make this a, a location 
uh, where they would uh, build these mounds. So. That's really crazy. And I was reading on on the K Nan Chi Wanang website that the site goes back some eight thousand years. That's really amazing. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And that there's evidence of house structures and gardens and things from that time going back eight thousand yeah. years. Yeah. Oh, definitely. So, so yeah, on our site we have about about 20 burial mounds that we look after. Um, but then in terms of archaeological sites, um, there's there's countless, like there were people who would, um, like were living here, coming here and trading. Um, some of the stuff that has been found archaeologically on the site includes uh, obsidian, for example, and that uh, for anyone who doesn't know, obsidian is Uh, a rock that's formed from lava. And so that's, of course, an item that would have had to have been traded to make its way all the way here, right? There weren't volcanoes in Northwestern Ontario. Um, And, you know, there've been shells found from other parts of the world and stuff. So yeah, it just really speaks to, you know, um, how much people were moving around and trading and bringing objects and ideas and things to to this place. Incredible. Now, what does Kainanshiwanang is that an Ojibwe word? Yeah, so it is a word in Ojibwe or Anishinaabe Moen, uh, which is the Ojibwe word for the language. But yeah, so uh, it is a, a phrase, a word that means uh, the place of the long rapids. And that's because on our site, we do have uh, two sets of rapids um, that are really important to the community, to the people that have lived here. Um, it's actually a place where sturgeon will spawn directly in those rapids, uh, which has been, yeah, just like a really important resource for the community for thousands of years. So incredible. Now, how did you get involved with the museum? Uh, so I've been here for a little over three years now. And uh, my background in terms of education is actually archaeology. And I was doing my master's degree at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay. And some of my professors there knew about a job opening at the center and they've kind of long known about the center and helped out in in various ways over the years. And uh, yeah, they just, they told me to apply and um, yeah, I've been here, been here ever since. Are you from Rainy River originally? Um, I'm not actually. So I'm actually originally from Winnipeg um, and uh, yeah. And there you are. And yeah. You know, right? Yeah. You never know where you're going to end up sometimes. Okay, now what's exactly. the, the connection with the yeah. uh, 2020 Ontario Tourism Awards? And you won the Indigenous Tourism Award at 2020 Ontario Tourism Awards. And tell us about that. Yeah, that was really exciting. Um we really weren't expecting that. We're uh, pretty new members to some of these tourism organizations and whatnot. Um, and um, so, yeah, it was just, it's so exciting to be recognized for all the hard work we do, especially in a year as weird as 2020. Um, you know, museums and the whole tourism industry have been so deeply affected by the pandemic and having to stay closed and whatnot. And so to be able to be recognized and, you know, sort of get some of that attention on our center and on the industry has just been really amazing. Um, And, you know, to win this award, just, uh, yeah, it means a lot to us and the team and the community uh, to be, to be recognized. So it was very exciting. It sure is. Now, do you get a lot of tourists coming from the U.S., people from the area? Like, Who comes to visit? Of course, when, when you're open, when it's not COVID season. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, in a typical year, a non-pandemic year, um, we would see visitors from really all over. Uh, so ranging from people, uh, you know, who are regulars from the area to even people that have lived in Stratton their whole lives and just have never made it out this way. Uh, but then we also do get, you know, a lot of travelers from across Canada, as well as some international ones as well. We uh, we keep a logbook of people to, you know, sign in and and say where they're from. And I mean, we'd have people from Australia and all over Europe. And so that it's really neat to see. But definitely the, the majority of our uh, visitors are from uh, kind of local and then across Canada. Uh, and then, yeah, quite a few visitors from the States normally as well. So I mentioned earlier, I thought the design based on the pictures is absolutely beautiful. Is that um, an Indigenous architectural design? Yeah, so so it was... Um... It was definitely a group effort when it came to designing the actual building and everything within it. Um, so the community did work with uh, like some external design companies and, and architects and engineers and everything. But community input was definitely a big factor in it. And you can really see that just with, you know, with all of the materials and everything that the center is built with. Like, so there are a lot of natural mat- materials. Um, you know, there's woods that were, some were obtained locally, some were brought in, you know, there's stones, there's just, yeah, a lot of stuff that um, is really important um, to the Indigenous communities out here. Um, and yeah, even a lot of, uh, a lot of community members were actually the ones that helped build it as well. And um, so yeah, it was, uh, you know, there was some outside help definitely in terms of some of the the design stuff but the community was was consulted throughout i'm finding definitely. too now yeah. in pandemic life that i'm wanting to find out more about the places i can get to within within my area how can we find out about the Nachi wanang historical center even if you can't come visit us in person, we are very active on our social media pages. Um, so you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And all of those, you can find us, uh, our name is Manitou Mounds, M-A-N-I-T-O-U, and then Mounds. Uh, also our website, which is manitoumounds.com. Um, and we post some stuff actually like every day. So for anybody who's interested in learning Anishinaabe Moan or Ojibwe, we post um, a daily phrase or word of the day, Monday through Friday. Uh, we also post a lot of workshops um, and interactive videos and stuff. And even some of our workshops were creating kits to go along with them. So for example, we recently did beaded poppies for Remembrance Day. And so we had a video that went along with that. And then we put together beading kits that have everything you need to uh, to make the beaded poppy. And uh, we do, we are starting to now offer the possibility for those to be mailed out anywhere across Canada. Um, so yeah, actually, if, if, uh, if you follow us on our social media accounts, um, and we're going to keep doing those, those, uh, those workshops. So you actually could, uh, could purchase a kit and, and take part in, in one of the workshops. Kaylee Spears is the curator of the K Nachi Wanang Historical Center, and it recently received the Indigenous Tourism Award at the 2020 Ontario Tourism Awards of Excellence virtual ceremony. When we come back, we're going to Fort McMurray, Alberta for Louis Riel Day Celebrations 2020. I'm Kathy Sabokin. Don't go away. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. 
I'm Kathy Sabokin, and this is Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and I'm filling in for David Moses. Well, typically Métis Week includes a large festival with 2,000 attendees, but because this is impossible this year, the McMurray Métis have put together a documentary-style video to teach kids about Métis culture and Louis Riel. Well, that's one thing that's happening. And with me on Zoom is Melanie Walsh, Social Media and Events Coordinator for McMurray Métis. Well, I understand you've produced a documentary and it's making a debut And tell us all about the documentary. Yeah, so every year on November 16th for Louis Riel Day, we usually host a really large gathering and we always really incorporate the students. McMurray Métis definitely believes like our future is in the youth and it's definitely important that we kind of pass down like our traditional knowledge to the youth. So this year with the pandemic, of course, we can't do that. I know it's really important to us too that we always like hype highlight and showcase our elders and then being a vulnerable population we definitely had to think outside the box this year so instead of hosting like a traditional gathering where we'd have really hundreds to thousands of people come and learn more about Louis Riel who he was and about Métis culture we decided to produce a mini documentary so I got to work on that and Yeah, it's a little mini documentary that's being shown to over 70 classrooms here in Fort McMurray today. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, tell us about, is it a history doc? Are there local people involved? Yeah, so there's lots of local people involved. I'm really proud of it because not only does it involve like our staff at the McMurray Métis, it also involves our elders and our youth as well. So kind of get a little bit of everything. We definitely touch on a lot of fun facts and history about Louis Riel. And then we also talk about like modern day Métis ways of living and life. So it's pretty interesting, I think. Well, what are a couple of the fun history facts about Louis Riel? Let's celebrate him. Yeah, we just talk about how he's a founder of the Métis people, how he was a really great student. He trained to become a priest and then he kind of went into law as well kind of just his life growing up and just different fun facts about him, how he was Métis. So like his lineage and ancestry is included in the documentary as well. And I was reading up on him and as we know, he was a founder of the Manitoba province and a Canadian politician. And during his lifetime, he also lived in exile in the U.S. for a number of years. And he was involved in a bunch of uprisings and he was executed for treason in 1885. What is this section of his life that where he went to the U.S.? Do you know anything about that? Well, he, yeah, sometimes he kind of lived a bit of a controversial life, but definitely throughout his life, he's just been known to just be like a really good advocate for Métis people and for their rights. So that's kind of why we celebrate him today. Okay. Now, Louis Riel Day is typically February 17th in Manitoba, but it's November 16th in Toronto. Any idea why why it's two different dates? Yeah. So here um, in Alberta as well, it's also Louis Riel Day. And that's because on November 16th, this is the day that he was actually executed. 
Um, and it's not a holiday. Lots of people in Alberta, I'm sure as well in Toronto, they're still going to work and they're still going to school today. But in Manitoba, just because Louis Riel was such a predominant figure there, um, it is recognized on in February on the family day. So they actually get that day off. It's a, it's a stat, I believe. Okay. Now, in the news, I was reading that the Métis National Council leadership is telling Quebec to back off of a campaign to exonerate Louis Riel. What is that all about? Um, the McMurray Métis are really passionate about keeping the history and story of Louis Riel alive because it is such an integral part of our history. And it is an, another example that we're strong, resilient Indigenous people still here today. And it's just kind of Louis Riel was our founder as well, so it is an important part of our history. Okay, sounds good, but at least he's he's being talked about, he's in the news, that's a good thing. Do you think that Canadians are, are starting to embrace history, such as the history of Louis Riel? I think Canadians are starting to embrace history. I know I'm really proud of the teachers here in Alberta, like, they really came to us this year and were like, we we know it's a pandemic, but we still want to like celebrate this day in our schools. And actually here in Alberta, it is not only Louis Riel Day, but it's Métis Week. So I'm really proud that the school board came to us with that and they really wanted to incorporate Louis Riel. And I think now in Canada, people are starting to recognize and celebrate more Indigenous people. I think we have a lot of Indigenous people themselves that are starting to reconnect with their culture as well and really be proud of it and showcase it and highlight it. So I think maybe in a couple of years, we're going to see many more people know who Louis Rail is and, you know, recognize the Métis people for everything that they have done and as are a part of Canada. Yes. Yeah, so Melanie, you just said you yourself, you're reconnecting with your Métis, Métis-ness. So I'm just wondering about that. Yeah, well, I um, am considered a youth. I'm 26 years old. And I do work a lot with our elders here at McMurray team. Very, very fortunate. I mean, not everyone can say they get to go to work every day with their grandma, their aunts and uncles. So it's really exciting that I have a lot of family involvement with it. But it's very different, like, how I went to school, my little sister's 13 years younger. So she's in grade seven right now. And like when I went to school, we didn't celebrate Louis Riel Day. We didn't have Métis Week. And me being a light-skinned native, a lot of times too, like, you know, we wouldn't really get teased, but people would ask us questions. And I didn't at that young age always know the right answers or sometimes it would make me feel uncomfortable so now to see my little sister going to school and they're all rocking their moccasins, they're all wearing, you know, either their hair and braids or their Métis sash, and they're all getting to learn about Louis Riel. It's really exciting. And now too, that so many people like here in Alberta too, like their teachers are really incorporating indigenous teachings and culture into the classroom. So that's really exciting. So My grandmother, she is such an important role in my life. And she has just, you know, really made me into the person who I am. And I'm so excited that I get to work with the Métis and get to, especially as the social media coordinator, kind of get to share all those traditional teachings and knowledge that she has taught me over the years. And 
I get to work with her and share them with the world really through social media. And our elders, they really are such humble people. And they have a lot of them have had really difficult pasts, whether it be, you know, through the residential school system. So I'm able to kind of bridge that gap and make them comfortable and ready to share their stories. And I'm just so excited that I, I'm able to do that. And as I share these stories with everyone, I get to learn more stories myself. So I'm just really excited now that I'm more comfortable being able to embrace my Métis culture. And I'm so proud of it. And I'm glad that like the rest of Canada and the world is starting to really like recognize it as well. Well, thank you for sharing that, Molly. Now you, you. you get to do PR for the McMurray Métis. What other projects are on the go? Well, I'm really excited because we launched TikTok. I, again, I really want to engage with the youth. And if you have seen anyone like Notorious Cree, Ojibwe Legacy, those or those are really great Indigenous TikTokers. And they, I mean, some of their videos have gone viral. And I think it's like really kind of helping to kind of end racism in a way because people are learning more about Indigenous and Métis people and why we do the things we do. And so I've just launched our TikTok, already getting a lot of views. So I'm super excited about that. It's um, Our username is at McMurrayMétis on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And I think just really spreading the message of like all these cool things that we get to do and why we do them just kind of helps people understand our culture more. That's fantastic. And, and of course, anyone can access TikTok, which is. Cool. Yeah, especially during the pandemic when we're all on Zoom or our technology so much. Like we've had to cancel, unfortunately, a number of events this year. We didn't have an event for like National Indigenous Peoples Day in June. We usually have a big Métis festival as well, where we invite all the schools. So we've had to cancel a lot of events this year. So obviously like that worries me in a in a small part because I know like all those students don't get to come and meet our elders and meet our staff and other people and get to come to our grounds you know and you know watch jigging and hear fiddle music and get to try bannock on a stick or maybe dry meat or dry fish and really embrace our culture and get like a really good taste of it but at the same time, maybe through Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, whatever medium they're comfortable with, they get to see a little bit about that. You are listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also find us on the Radio Player Canada app or on our website, elmntfm.ca. That's elmntfm.ca. I'm Kathy Sabokin. Filling in for David Moses, along with my guest, Melanie Walsh. Melanie is social media and events coordinator for the McMurray Métis. Now back to the documentary, what does Louis Riel mean to you? You know, it's really interesting. Being a Métis person, you have to trace your ancestry back so many generations. And my coworker, who I worked with a lot and actually helped me out on the documentary, Ali Hurley, she's one of our summer students. She can actually trace her ancestry right back to Louis Riel. So that is really amazing. So when we say Louis Riel was a founder of the Métis Nation, he really was, and he fought for our rights. And I know back then there was a lot of 
you know, genocide happening to our culture. So him fighting for our rights is just another reason why, you know, we're here today, why Ali's here today too. So it's really exciting. That's incredible that she traced her own past all the way back to Louis Riel. How did she do that? Genealogy is a really big part of becoming a member of the Métis Nation of Alberta. Like I mentioned, you have to, you do have to prove your gen, your ancestry back so many generations and in a way it almost becomes like very interesting and like a hobby for people so we're just really proud of like our family and our lineage and a lot of people are able to trace back like have you many years have you done your own tracing do you know how far back you personally go yes so i have done my own tracing my whole family has so we are related to um it was the papa chase chief that we're our family is able to release our relate our ancestry ancestry back to so that's kind of one of the most early predominant figures and he was kind of from like the alberta edmonton area and we could just learn more about his history and then i think probably you know my um, family could even trace it back even more. So that's definitely something that we're working on. The McMurray Métis are building a new cultural center actually here in Fort McMurray. I'm really, really excited about that. And definitely once that is built and we have more space, we'll probably have like a full room dedicated to genealogy. You need, I always joke, sometimes we need like a really big marker board or chalkboard to be able to draw like big, huge, beautiful family trees. That sounds great. And I didn't realize you have to prove your ancestry. You have to to prove that you go back so many years. Do you think otherwise people would might be cheating and say they're Métis when really they're not? Because that little stories have come up about that in the news. Well, really, it's just like anything. Like I'm like even when you get a passport, there's a process, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just like that. To so to be a card carrying like member of the Métis Nation of Alberta or even the Métis Nation of Ontario. It's just part of the application process. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's great. You know, you know who you are and I think that's so important and yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. It, it, yeah, it is really great too, because I think a lot of people kind of question Métis people or other Indigenous people, especially if their skin is on the lighter side. There's like that you know, tone of racism there. So if you do see someone and they are like Métis and they, especially a, a card carrying member, like know that a lot of work has actually went into that, you know, like we're a very credible group because again, no one could just walk in and apply for a card. It's a lot of work that goes into proving your ancestry. And unfortunately with everything that happened in the past in the residential school system, it's not always easy it's not simply easy as like calling up your mom and being like okay mom dad who were your grandparents okay who were their grandparents like you know because at one time the government did try to erase our whole culture right like our whole our identity so it is a difficult process getting your genealogy done and sometimes for some people in certain circumstances it could be difficult becoming you know, a part of the Métis Nation, just because that is the process, because we are so credible. Right. And it's not like you can go on Ancestry.com and learn that history. 
I mean, some cases I know a lot of people do like to do that. It's really interesting, but no, you need like, it, it's a definitely more rigorous process with a little bit more proof that you need sometimes. So it's, I mean, it's really fascinating. Sometimes, you know, I, if I have like distant cousins or third or fourth cousins, like come into the office and, you know, we able to trace their tree and it's really cool. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm over here and you're all the way over there. Like so fascinating. Do you know how many um, Métis there are in Canada, in what is currently Canada or your I'm area? Not, I'm, I wouldn't have the answer off the top of my head how many Métis people there are in Canada, but here in Fort McMurray, right now we have about over easily over 600 members and that is confirmed. But, you know, that could even be more as people, you know, like myself are reclaiming their culture and we get people applying every day. So right now it's over 600 here just in Fort McMurray, Alberta. That's fantastic. Well, it sounds like there's a lot going on, Melanie, and you're doing fantastic work. Thank you. Yeah, I, it has been so much fun. I'm really, really excited about it. I'm so happy to be working with the McMurray Métis. And I'm so happy that, you know, radio stations in Toronto are becoming interested in what we're doing up here in Northern Alberta and that we are getting the traction that we have been on social media. I think I'm just trying to post interesting content that people will like to see. And I'm really excited about that. And where can we find McMurray Métis? So we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and now TikTok. And our username is at McMurray Métis. All right. Well, we will try to, to find you outside of this interview. Thank <laughs> you for your time today, Melanie. Great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.